Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It's Thursday, March 30th. I'm your host, Isaac Dover, subbing in for Scott Bland. You're listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Before we get started, please remember to subscribe and rate the Nerdcast on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Share the episodes on social media and email us questions or comments at nerdcast at politico.com. And while we're at it, I want to plug my own podcast, Off Message, where I interview the country's leading political figures to get into what's really going on in politics. Some of our guests were House Freedom Caucus crusader and Nietzsche enthusiast Dave Bratt, former DNC chair Donna Brazil, right after she handed the gavel over to Tom Perez. And this coming Monday, our guest is Seattle Mayor Ed Murray, who talked to you about the lawsuit he just filed against the federal government on sanctuary cities. We also talked about his history with Trappist monks and how they influenced his decision to come out of the closet as a young man. It's a story that is different from anything I've ever heard before, and I'm sure you will be really intrigued to hear his whole telling of it. And with that, let's get to today's numbers. Number one, 35. That's Donald Trump's approval rating. Can it go any lower? We'll talk about it. Number two, two and a half. That's the number of hours that Devin Nunes, the House Intelligence Committee chair, took to start to sell out his source when it was revealed that he had actually met that source at the White House the day before going to tell President Trump about some supposed intelligence findings and having a press conference there. Number three, 29. That's the number of confirmed no votes for cloture for Neil Gorsuch's nomination among Senate Democrats. It means that there are just 11 more Democrats who could turn this into a filibuster showdown nuclear option with the Senate Republicans that would rewrite the rules of the Senate forever. All right, I'm joined by the crew this week, Charlie Matessian, senior politics editor. I hope you brought your A-game because spilling the fancy sparkling water all over Eliana was not a good start. That, that was uh, supposed to be left for the cutting room floor, Charlie. <laughs> uh, Nancy Cook, a senior reporter here at Politico. Thanks for having me. And Eliana Johnson, national political reporter. Happy Thursday. <laughs> so let's get right into it. Our first data point is 35. That is, according to Gallup, President Trump's approval rating at the beginning of this week. Uh, I guess I'd start out by asking, do you guys think it's going to be lower uh, by the time that Gallup puts out their numbers at the beginning of next week? Charlie, what do you think? Uh, I think that there is a uh, seal or a floor for, for Trump's numbers, and we've seen that throughout. I mean, I don't think he's going to drop yet, yet at least into uh, sort of George Bush late second term numbers where he was in – uh, the high 20s. I think what we saw, what we've learned at least about Trump's numbers is it's a kind of a high floor and a low ceiling. And he tends to stay within a fairly narrow band, never popular, never over 50 percent, but never really drops too low either, despite whatever the controversy of the day is. I mean, you see the strength in the, the base. We were talking uh, just a few minutes ago, actually, about uh, the 
I think it's 74% of Republicans say that they believe that Obama wiretapped Trump and that there is this, you know, the the tribalism that goes on here, uh, which means that, yeah, there, there is only so low probably that Trump can go if people are uh, going to attach to him no matter what, if they're on the team. Right? Yeah, and, and no matter how low his numbers are right now, and, you know, folks often talk about how it's historically unprecedented that he doesn't have a, a honeymoon in the polls, no matter how bad those numbers look. It's important to keep in mind he's still at at least 80 percent with Republicans. Eight out of 10 Republicans think he's doing a decent job. And so as long as that's the case, his numbers aren't going to fall too low. But it seems like part of what was going on with the Obamacare repeal vote was people who thought, even Republicans, that it wasn't uh, so important to stand with him, that there was some wiggle room there given where the approval numbers are. uh, And that leaves them – open to breaking apart from him potentially on other votes, right, if if that's where we're going on this. I I wonder just how much his approval rating matters. I mean, we had um, a presidential election between the two most unpopular presidential candidates in history. Their approval ratings in the primaries didn't seem to matter very much. Um, Trump came in um, on his inauguration day and was the most unpopular candidate president in history to be sworn into office. And so I wonder if we're in in an era where um, positive approval rating or positive feelings about politicians don't matter that much and we're, we're uh, sort of taking the wrong measure of mm-hmm. things. So what would um, you use? And, I, and, you know, I'm not sure, but I, the Freedom Caucus, I don't think, defied Trump because his approval rating um, is low. I think they defied him um, because they didn't think he was all in on the health care bill. They didn't fear retribution um, from him. And frankly, they were more popular um, and had higher approval ratings in their districts than did the president. Um, I think they fundamentally thought that they understood the political calculation. I mean, that does play into approval rating. But um, I had Freedom Caucus members tell me, you know, the president came in and said, you will lose in 2018. Um, if you vote against this bill. And they said, he's reading the politics wrong. We will lose in 2018 if we vote for this bill because premiums premiums will go up and Republicans will be blamed for voting yes and we will be, uh, we will be booted from office. And I think you're going to see the same sort of argument happen on the border adjustment tax where they think that voters will punish them for uh, – Signing into law something that consumers, you know, when they when they go shopping, um, that will hurt their pocketbooks. You know, you had Rich Lowry, the editor of National National Review, say yesterday, Trumpism is in crisis because I don't. uh, It doesn't seem like the president has been able to translate um, some very skillful campaigning into um, a, a vision for legislating. I think that's true on definitely the big stuff. And and you could argue in Washington, the way that we measure the success of presidency is on the big stuff. Like, will he be able to push through a tax reform package? You know, they had to pull the health care bill. That was a huge failure. But I do think just on terms of the optics and the marketing of his presidency, he's still doing a really good job. You know, he's signing executive orders. He's taking credit for American businesses creating jobs here, even if he himself did not have a role in creating that. He's undoing a lot of the Obama uh, environmental regulations and climate change things. You know, this morning there's a meeting at the White House about tax reform. And one of the things that they're going to talk about is Steve Bannon is going to think about, you know, how can you give a tax cut to the middle class people? And so I think on those things, 
that really matters. And there's photo ops of it. You know, he's talking about it on Instagram. He's talking on his Twitter feed. And so to the extent that his followers connect with him over social media and they kind of don't pay attention to the Washington machinations of the Hill versus the White House, I think he has done a good job on trying to act like he's doing things on the show of the presidency. And but that does matter. And that's part of what got him elected. Well, so let's talk about the big things, though. Are we going to get the White House has spent the week talking about how tax reform and infrastructure are coming? Is there any chance of tax reform and infrastructure uh, getting to the president's desk? I think the idea that tax reform was somehow going to be uh, an easier sell than health care reform um, is ridiculous. Um, you already have. But their, their argument, right, is that you have Democrats who will be with them now and that that'll be the easy thing. I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, I think if you if you had Donald Trump pushing a bill that was, you know, uh, picking the pockets of the you know hundred richest men on Wall Street, I'm not sure that you would get um, you, that you would get Democratic votes for that right now. Um, I think, and I think you're seeing that that play out with the Gorsuch nomination. It's just very, very difficult given the mood of the uh, grassroots Democratic base to get. Democratic cooperation on something. That is not the way that Trump campaigned. Um, and that's not uh, how, what his rhetoric has been like thus far. Now, he could have given an inaugural address that was inclusive, um, that was more inclusive, that struck more inclusive notes. And he could have suggested from the outset that he wanted to govern that way. He didn't do that. We will no longer accept politicians who are all talk and no action constantly complaining, but never doing anything about it. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. And I think now it's going to be uh, somewhat more difficult uh, to switch from, you know, a scorched earth, um, you know, anti-establishment mode to governing in a bipartisan manner now that he's been burned by the Freedom Caucus. If they're yeah. reliant on Democratic votes for tax reform, then that is a sucker's bet because they're not paying attention then to what's happening on the Democratic side. I mean, it is if, – if you are a Democrat, any faint toward uh, civility, collegiality, working with the Trump administration is viewed as collaboration. I mean, you saw this I – mean, I, I, To me, uh, talking with Democrats um, – members of the House and the Senate uh, around the end of last year, they were still shell-shocked and thought, oh, I don't know, maybe Trump's onto something. We got to key into it and connect with him. And now they're really between that inaugural address, between uh, the the travel ban and the Obama wiretapping tweets, they're really just uh, done with him and they don't want anything to do with him. I think you're right. Like There's no way to see that you see Democrats who are going to actually be there when it's time to vote. They may say that they want tax reform and that they're willing to work with the president. The relationship is totally radioactive and it shows in big ways. It's big on policy, but also in the little ways. They feel like, you know, the way he has treated uh, President Obama, Hillary Clinton through Twitter and the statements there. It's the big things. It's the little things. And you see it in, in the interactions. Look at the uh, the White House reception with senators during the week. There were a lot, you know, the president talked about how shockingly bipartisan it is, but only about half the Dems showed up. And none of the ones thinking about running in 2020 were there. Elizabeth Warren wasn't there. Bernie Sanders. A lot of Democrats skipped that 
meeting. Uh, and then what I thought was really revealing, there was a, a good story in the Boston Globe yesterday talking about how Stephen Lynch, one of the probably the most conservative member of the all-democratic Massachusetts delegation, declined to take a meeting with the White House. The White House reaches out because they want to work with Democratic moderates. Steve, Lynch declines to take the meeting. That tells you something, that the person who the rest of the I mean, delegation is always at odds with. Yeah, that's, that's a problem in itself. But, but the fact that he won't take the meeting tells you something really revealing about the state of the relationship and the fact that that Democrat wouldn't take the meeting. Well, also just internally at the White House, there's so much strife already over tax reform. You have Gary Cohen, who's the head of the NEC, and uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, they have what one source described to me last night, a cordial but competitive relationship. And, you know, Cohen is on the Hill, you know, acting like with Republicans on the tax writing committees that he's going to be driving tax reform. And meanwhile, President Trump is telling people behind closed doors, oh, Steve Mnuchin's going to be running tax reform. And so you're already setting up just more palace intrigue, internal feuds, like team of rivals on who's going to drive this bill. And then they also, you know, they wrote this whole tax plan during the transition. They're scrapping that already, you know, starting fresh. They don't have any, there's like no agreement on how big the package is, what the policy is going to say. And so the idea that they're going to do this by August, which I know Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said last week, I mean, that's a really optimistic timeline. So are we uh, going to be in a place where uh, we have even a, the, the consideration of a vote on these things, uh, on tax reform? Before the end of the year, before the end of the, the before they go on their summer recess, where when should we expect that uh, that this is going to come together? Well, I think what's tremendously difficult is that to get a vote on these things, you really need um, to have a, a seamless cooperation between the president um, and his team in the White House, the Speaker of the House, and the Majority Leader in the Senate. And it seems like that relationship is um, strained you know, somewhat dysfunctional and that the leaders, the Republican leaders in Congress are confused at best as to where the White House stands, how much the president's going to invest in this, and that that can change from day to day uh, um, and that the plans on of Republican legislators on Capitol Hill can be torpedoed with a tweet. Um, there's just no consistency and predictability as to what's going to happen from the White House. I think that makes it very, very difficult to push legislation through Congress. And last also, week, well, Charlie, last week you and uh, the the podcast were talking about how you were surprised that the president hadn't singled out a member of the Freedom Caucus to go after. Uh, after the Obamacare repeal vote, uh, I think he did two different tweets uh, going after the Freedom Caucus as a whole, which is 30-ish members. It's one of those weird numbers, but it's not clear how many members are actually in the Freedom Caucus. But we do know that there is one fewer member. Ted Poe from Texas said he's out. Uh, and we have another member, uh, according to our colleague Rachel Bay, Brian Babin, also from Texas, who's thinking about going. So where does that leave it? Is the Freedom Caucus going to break? Is there... Uh, do you see a, an, an ability for the White House to, to change its strategy to bring those folks in? Rachel's got another great story, and I don't mean to show for, for her story, <laughs> but she got another great story today just about uh, hand-wringing within the Freedom Caucus about what maybe they went too far. And when you read the comments and sort of read between the lines of what the members are saying, it really goes to show that it seems to me that they're shaken by this, that they feel like in retrospect they may have made a very big mistake. And I suspect that they're saying things like that because they're hearing from back home. I mean, these folks have 
really finely attuned political antenna. They always know what's happening back home, and they are hearing from uh, folks back home because many of them represent strong Trump districts. And Trump's relationship with the Freedom Caucus, I think, is another reason why I'm with Nancy on the, on the idea of, you know, real skepticism about the idea of getting tax reform done by August. I mean, there's a reason it's been 30 years since they did the last major bit of tax reform. This Think about the number of legislative days left until August and all that has to go through that pipeline by then. There's not going to be any time. You've got, uh, you've got the nuclear showdown, which is going to uh, – sh- that's going to suck all the oxygen out of Washington. Then you've got a shutdown slash debt fight. That just doesn't leave any time to get such a major thing through the system. And you're assuming nothing surprising comes up like – uh, often happens in the first year of a presidency. You and, know, and in his <laughs> presidency. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't – you say that the, the they're regretting – some of the Freedom Caucus members are regretting their votes. I'm not sure that all that many of them are. Um, I was talking to one uh, right before the vote and I said something like, well, who knows what the primary electorate is going to look like next year. And that member said to me, oh, I do. Um, and it was not uh, in favor of where Trump was. So, right, like it, it, it does leave this question of can they get anything done at all? We're, uh, and uh, and we're, it, we're two it, months into unified Republican control of Congress and the White House. And are we at the point where we can say that we don't really think that anything's going to get done? Well, and I also think you have to – I mean all the people that I'm talking to are gaming out like, OK, if you don't get tax reform, like a vote on tax reform by let's say August, you know, does that mean that it's totally dead and like – because people are already looking to 2018. Right. So like what's the cutoff point for getting things done, particularly since healthcare failed, you've got tax reform, but then really April is going to be consumed by – uh, potential government shutdown, you know, spending bills that they need to pass, um, and this Gorsuch vote. And so, like, you know, part of the spring is already taken up with just that stuff. Right. Well, uh, I also think, you know, what what is the conversation that Republicans would be having had Donald Trump lost the election? They would be talking about um, – you know, what's the future of the Republican Party? What does it mean to be a Republican? What does it mean to be a conserv- uh, conservative? Um, is conservatism as, uh, irrelevant? Uh, what's its role in the party? And, you know, Trump won very, very narrowly. And I'm not sure that um, that that's a conversation that shouldn't be had anyway, because it seems in, uh, perhaps even more relevant now um, that they're the, a governing majority. It seems like uh, they can't really figure out what uh, what those things quite well, mean. If they are they, a governing what, majority, right? Um, exactly. And, and what the answer to those questions? Well, can are. I throw out a, another counterfactual thing? Because I'm kind of curious now that uh, you brought that up. What if <laughs> or three Ted, and four? <laughs> what if Ted Cruz or uh, Marco Rubio was president, and not Donald Trump? Would healthcare have gotten done? I'm not sure it would have. I mean, I think what, it is true that it's easier to vote against something mm-hmm. than to vote for it. Right? I just think it's remarkable that there's even discussion of a government shutdown. Well, right, with, uh, with Republican, which we're talking about for Congress the end of the this House. month. Right. right, it's like we're not even at the 100 day mark, and there might be a Republican led government shutdown. <laughs> and and it's not like not over anything, right? Like, <laughs> and and to be clear, the government shutdown in 2013 was essentially 
not over anything, right? Uh, but this would really, that was about uh, an attempt to make a stink over Obamacare and Planned Parenthood funding and that. But th- th- this is, how could we have a government shutdown? There's, there's not going to rep- be a government shutdown. Okay. <laughs> Eliana's shutting it down. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Shut down the shutdown talk. But doesn't it make, even though the, I mean, you think you're probably, you're more wired into the Republican uh, p- politics than I am, Eliana, but even if there's not, a shutdown and you think that there's not going to be just the idea that it's like floating out there I feel like is damaging to them no I don't think so I mean I feel like this gets floated every single time that there that the government needs to be funded again and um, it's out in the ether among you know the media and lawmakers but I, I think it's very unlikely there will, there will be a shutdown uh, yeah it doesn't seem like people are in that space right yeah. now I'm ready for the next topic. I Let's think. do the next topic. <laughs> next data point, two and a half, which is about the number of hours that it took for Devin Nunes, the House Intelligence Committee chair, to start talking about who his source was, apparent source, uh, after it was found out that he went to see that source on the White House grounds. That's after he had said, I'm not telling you anything about this person. And then now has told us that it's an intelligence uh, official who he had to go see at the White House. So, uh, Eliana, what is going on here? What? Uh, what's what's with Devin Nunes? You know, I think the I've said this, I feel like I've said this on the podcast for the past five weeks, but the uh, the problem afflicting uh, Nunez is the same problem that's af- afflicted Jeff Sessions and Jared Kushner um, and Michael Flynn, which is that um, there's no question that A, get the Russians uh, meddled in the presidential campaign, and that B, Donald Trump had um, a senior member of his campaign who had illicit business dealings with uh, pro-Russian, you know, unsavory characters uh, associated with the Russian government. Given that, anything that touches Russia or related to Russia is potentially politically explosive um, and should be treated really with the absolute utmost sensitivity, no matter what it is and whether the meetings are, you know, absolutely 100% appropriate. That's true for members of the Trump administration. It's true for the Republican members of Congress um, who are investigating these issues, um, who should try to go about those investigations um, with the utmost care. And optics matter. And so I think... I feel like you're drawing a contrast to Devin Nunes. Right. Well, so, (laughs) and for Nunes to... um, Regardless of uh, um, of the fact, regardless of whether he what he did was perfectly appropriate, the optics of it are bad because it looks like he was not going about this in um, with uh, a lot of care and in a bipartisan fashion. I think undermines the investigation and was a bad judgment call. Um, whether it was, you know. Whether uh, the investigation should now be uh, put outside of Congress, I'm not sure. But certainly it was bad judgment. Um, It makes the investigation, I think, look compromised. And uh, it was not a smart thing to do. I think when it comes to Nunes, obviously he's not very – he's not covered in glory on this. And it's almost like the worst case scenario when like the Republican conference or, you know, when the steering committees get together to talk about chairs and ranking members and they talk in private about, you know, who's going to take over and you have to think through how these people will operate as as leaders of these committees and all the, you know, the political calculus you have to make, figure out how they'll represent the party, whether they do a good job. This is like a worst case scenario of how to – 
uh, botch a uh, – the stewardship of a committee and reflect poorly both on that committee on yourself and also on the party. But what's really interesting, uh, I think, about Nunes is that apparently it's not uh, devastating him back home. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a Republican. We had a good story about this yesterday, where uh, David Siders went to his district in Central Valley, California, and found that it's really not damaging him that much. There's no reason to think. What at do you the attribute moment. that to? I, th- I think it's just the polarized environment that we live in right now that automatically you retreat back to your tribe and you give your tribe the benefit of the doubt no matter what. I mean that that is the world we live in now. It's not something where automatically people are going to – on both sides are going to be uh, upset and horrified by the behavior of a member. You automatically distrust what the media says. You automatically think politics are at play. You don't trust anything. So – in that vacuum of trust, you retreat back to the thing you know or the devil you know. I and mean, it seems to me also part of it is that uh, this the, the investigation is uh, a big deal in Washington and a big deal in government, uh, but so far has not really penetrated to uh, the country in any deep way. Uh, they know that there's, I think voters seem to know that there's something in the air about Russia, but that Devin Nunes is changing his story about who he met with and how he met with the person. All those kinds of details are, are not uh, grabbing people so far. Part of, part of it has to do with uh, how people perceive the media now. Did you see the story? I think it was a Pew, Pew or somebody did some uh, numbers where six out of ten people think the media, mainstream media regularly puts out fake news. Uh, when you look at the numbers of, of uh, voters' perceptions of the media, uh, they uh, think that we are not covering Donald Trump fairly. So against that backdrop, you could easily see how people would tune out and not really believe what the media is reporting. Well, the Russia story is so tricky, too, because it's, you know, it's happening over Congress and the White House and, you know, multiple committees are investigating it. And so it's kind of like this slow drip story. And if you're not paying attention every single day or this isn't something that you're totally interested in, I think people tune it out. Um, I feel like it's a little bit similar to you know, all of the ethical questions surrounding the Trump presidency, although there are like more definitive answers with that, you know, there's ethics forms and, you know, an office of government ethics and rules that people have to follow. And so there's more definitive lines about like what happened and what the disclosures are. But I feel like it's that's also something where Washington really cares about that. And I'm not sure how much that's resonating with the rest of the country. So what's your gut check? Is there going to be an independent inquiry? Is there going to be it seems like the the Senate Intelligence Committee is trying to act like the adults in the room, Richard Burr and and Mark Warner. Uh, Is that where the action is going to move to? I felt that that was a really uh, smart play yesterday by Warner and Burr and sent a very powerful signal, uh, not just to Washington, but also to to the nation. I mean, I think the the, the level of warmth uh, and familiarity and collegiality there uh, sent a very powerful signal that, hey, I know that maybe you're a little bit unnerved by what's happening on the House side, but we're grownups over here, and at least one of these probes is going to get it right. Uh, and and so this is a, we're talking about the the drama around Nunez and what he did. Do what more do we know anything uh, at this point uh, about what the actual substance of the investigation is more than we did a week ago? I don't think we know Nothing. very much at all. Right. Squat. Yeah, we know that Jared Kushner was pulled in to talk to the Senate committee, right? But we don't know exactly about what. And do we know even at this point whether uh, we don't it was know on who the record Nunes met with? Right. right. <laughs> you know, we don't know who signed him into the White House. Right. <laughs> 
And I think all, all we really know is that the Senate Intelligence Committee is call, calling people to testify. Yeah. Uh, they've called, they called Jared Kushner this week. Um, anybody who has met, met with the Russian ambassador um, and we found out Kushner met with the head of a Russian bank that was under U.S. sanctions. So it does look like the Senate in, Intelligence Committee is undertaking the, the serious work um, of getting to the bottom of this. And we also had that weird episode with Sally Yates and whether she had been called to testify or her testimony had been scrapped and where the White House was. What, where do you think that that uh, goes from here? Is it, are we going to see Sally Yates in front of the committee at some point? Um, or are we gonna, just going to see her start her campaign for governor of Georgia? <laughs> you, seem to be, you seem to be suggesting that maybe Sean Spicer hasn't been entirely forthcoming or wasn't honest in one of the I think answers? Sean Spicer has not been entirely forthcoming or honest in almost every briefing that he's done as White House press secretary. He's a truly gifted public servant, that one. <laughs> All right, let's move on to data point number three, which is uh, 29. It's the number of Democratic senators who at this point, and this may change even within a few hours, are confirmed no's on cloture uh, for uh, Neil Gorsuch for his nomination. That means that we are uh, not very far away from a filibuster. They need 60 votes uh, to stop one. That means that you can have 40 uh, Democrats uh, who are opposed. They're already at 29. And that does not count all of the uh, ones who we assume will are just for sure going to be now. But that could force us into uh, a uh, a real showdown in the Senate, the nuclear option, getting rid of the filibuster. Uh, among the people who are confirmed no's, I think notably are Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, who's up for re-election next year in a state that Donald Trump won. Bill Nelson uh, from Florida, up for re-election in a state that Trump won and is seen as the probably most vulnerable of the Democratic senators up. Tim Kaine, also up for re-election in a state that Clinton won, but who is expecting to have uh, what could be a tough race next year. So how's this going to go down? Nuclear uh, option. That's going to go down. I agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree as well. Good segment. <laughs> We've got that resolved. Well, what, I think it's really important to, to keep in mind that what this says. It's that the, the Democratic base is ascendant. I mean, that's what this is about. They're going to have to employ the nuclear option because the Democratic base is so radicalized and so energized that it's simply an untenable position for any Democratic senator to take to to vote to grease this thing through. I mean, Nelson is a perfect example. Casey, less so, but still a decent example. I mean, they are Senate indicator species. Uh, they are Trump state Democrats who were up in 2018 in red states. And when you Charlie look, just did the taxonomy, he found they're, they're Senate <laughs> indicator species. I, 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 I always looked at them in the House and the Senate. You know, species I keep a, in indicators. <laughs> I keep not, in yes, and on every on every issue, if you look to these people, they will tell you everything you need to know because they are always living on the edge. And a person like Nelson had uh, has to think in his head: Who is he more scared of? Is he more scared of being taken down in a primary? Or in the general, because keep in mind he's a centrist. He uh, voted for Alito in the past. He's somebody that has been supportive of uh, presidential prerogative when it comes to nominees in the past. And he thought it over and realized that he just couldn't take a chance. So, is the nuclear option just a thing that we talk about in Washington? That that it's like, oh my God, I can't believe we do do the nuclear option. That's how uh, the reporting around it was uh, when the Democrats took away the filibuster for a bunch of cabinet confirmations. Or is it? Does it matter? Do you think that people are going to register that like 
oh, the rules of the Senate change. Now you actually <laughs> you need 51 votes to pass something instead of 60, which is always weird. I think it registers <laughs> a, as background noise that partisanship is increasing, that there is nasty fighting going on in the Capitol, that Democrats are pitching a fight over um, you know, relatively non-controversial nominee, but not as, oh, the rules of, you know, the character of the Senate is changing. I think people probably could care less back home. Most people just will just dismiss it as that place is broken and ridiculous and irrelevant. And this is just the latest example. Right. And and all the, you know, Democrats in places like New York or Massachusetts are going to be like thrilled that, uh, you know, the Democrats are finally stepping up and learning something from the Republicans about obstructionism. And then the Republicans are going to say the Democrats are difficult and we'll all move on. And Gorsuch will end up in the Supreme Court. And the best part is, right, that is there any scenario in which Neil Gorsuch no. is not sitting no. on the bench? Right. right. So this is all just, I think, about the optics of the fight and, you know, the Democrats really trying to harness a lot of anger and opposition. And the best part is that it's going to reveal them all to be complete hypocrites because we will have a round of stories that goes to show virtually every Democrat uh, who took the opposite position five years ago. You know, this happens every couple of years and just shows how ridiculous. I mean, and and the Republicans also. And then and and even on on the the Garland versus the Gorsuch situation, they all uh, they prove uh, the worst fears of voters about politicians who just say whatever is the convenient thing for them at the time and, and and pretend that it's about principle. Right. It will completely validate every poll that shows Congress's public standing at 5% or whatever. I mean, they will show themselves to be uh, the utmost hypocrites. I think what's interesting is just what, and I don't have an answer to this, but this is something that I'm watching. You know, it's likely that that President Trump will get to pick more than one Supreme Court justice. And so if this is the way it goes down with Gorsuch. Yeah, Judge Napolitano is going to be the next one. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as he gives up his Fox News contract. Yeah. Um, yeah, it doesn't pay as well to be a Supreme Court justice. It certainly doesn't. <laughs> but, um, you know, what's going to go down with the next one? Um See, I thought that I thought Democrats would save the fight for the next one, which is over um, somebody who mo- very likely will change the uh, composition of the court. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's very likely that Anthony Kennedy will step down, and not over this one, um, which isn't going to change the character uh, or the political composition of the court. Um, but so I'm somewhat surprised to see them. Uh, it seems like that they wanted to put it off, but the base wouldn't let them essentially. But both right? party bases are like children these days. You know, they don't think they want what they want right away. They demand it. I mean, the smart strategic thing for Democrats would be to do exactly what Eliana said. Hold your uh, firepower, uh, your your gunpowder dry, get ready for the next fight because that's the one that matters. But the base will not allow that. And you see that on the Republican side too. Do you think that there's any chance that the vote just gets delayed a little bit or that we're just uh, – that that's one theory of this is that the Democrats will hope to just – Okay, Gorsuch will get confirmed, but it'll they'll have to pay the Republicans will have to pay a price by waiting an extra six weeks or whatever for it. Or the Republicans are just gonna say that's it. How much of a price are you gonna pay if you wait six weeks? Right. I mean, what's the right. cost there? That's, <laughs> I don't even understand. There's not that a lot theory. of rational calculation going on. <laughs> Um, and then long term, does this matter in 2018 for midterms? Is anything about Neil Gorsuch is that that going to be a factor? I think in no. Democratic primaries, but that's it. Yeah, I think about the future of the Supreme Court, like the next pick, um, or maybe you know maybe some people will try to make a stink. I mean, President Trump's going to get to fill over a hundred other judicial vacancies on the lower courts, and those are going to be really key. Um, and so 
uh, you know, maybe those will come up in in other races. Just the whole idea of what's at stake with the court system. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't an issue uh, last year for the Democrats at all, despite their attempts to make it one. So if anything, it'll be for the Republicans if there's another opening or the potential of one. And on that uplifting note, I think we'll leave it. Nancy Cook, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Eliana Johnson, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for giving me a sparkling water bath as we begin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I assume that that uh, accounts for some of your crankiness. Uh, crankiness, yeah. <laughs> it's for the listener's benefit. And Charlie Matassian, thank you. So tell us, how was your first experience with the Nerdcast? It is a different experience than interviewing politicians who uh, do their best not to say some of the things that you guys were talking about. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the interview that I did with Roger Stone last week where he uh, told me, at, at, almost told me about some of his sexual habits, I'm glad is not something that came up in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> glad it didn't come up in all our Talk about that now if you want, Isaac. Thank you to our listeners. Rate and review the Nerdcast on iTunes. Email us at nerdcast at politico.com and tune into my show, Off Message, on iTunes every Monday. The Nerdcast and Scott Bland will be back again next week.